Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I will be your host. In our last program, we explored over-fertilization of coastal waters and associated problems of algal blooms and dead zones, areas devoid of dissolved oxygen. This is a national problem that affects not only our coastal marine environments, but also the Great Lakes. The opinion of our two experts, Paul Sandifer, Senior Science Advisor to NOAA's National Ocean Service, and Tom Schmid, President of the Texas State Aquarium, is that the problem is increasing in severity and in geographic extent, and that over-fertilization and dead zones may well be exacerbated by climate change. Today we're going to explore a problem common to both ocean coasts and the Great Lakes. The problem, or the challenge, is to enhance the resilience of coastal communities, both human and natural communities, to enhance their resilience to chronic problems and to events, events such as hurricanes, nor'easters, floods, and droughts, to make them less vulnerable. Again, we're looking both at human communities and at the communities of aquatic life that occupy the coastal zone. Here with me today are two experts on this topic. Margaret Davidson, Director of NOAA's OCRM, the Office of, Coastal, of Ocean and Coastal Resource Management, and Laura Pettish. Laura is the Ecosystem Science Advisor in NOAA's Climate Program Office. Margaret, I want to start with you. A good place to start is always at the beginning. Define for us in common, ordinary language, not government speak or academic jargon, what we mean, what we mean by resilience in the context of our topic for today. Certainly, Jerry, and thank you for uh, having us uh, in this discussion with you today. Uh, the concept of resilience, if not the actual word itself, actually has uh, long roots. Uh, you can even find it in The Art of War, which is a lovely little Chinese uh, book from about the seventh century. Uh, and, and it's uh, been found a lot in the engineering community as well as in the uh, the systems of community, both uh, people who study ecosystems and people who study things like IT and telecommunication systems. So there are any interpretations, and you ask for the context. Uh, it does depend if we're talking about uh, disaster, risk reduction, or climate adaptation, or ecosystem management, or even community planning. Uh, the one that uh, we tend to use here uh, in the coastal community is the same as the one that's used by the Resilience Alliance, and that is the capacity of a system that could be a community of individuals, or it could be an ecosystem or whatever, but the capacity of a system to absorb a disturbance uh, and to reorganize or to reboot uh, itself while undergoing that change. Uh, not snap back to what you were before, but to change and evolve uh, quickly and with alacrity and with as little disturbance uh, as is possible given the conditions. All right, that, that, very, very good. Laura, would you like to add to what Margaret has said? Sure. Um, I think Margaret's definition is a great one. I actually uh, found one that I really liked, ironically, from uh, psychology today that I'm going to paraphrase, which is that 
Resilience is that ineffable quality that allows some people to be knocked down by life and come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain their resolve, they find a way to rise from the ashes, even after misfortune. Resilient people are able to change course and soldier on. And I really liked that because I think that that's very much what Margaret was um, describing, is that it's not the ability to bounce back to the previous state necessarily, but to build back or uh, bounce back even stronger than ever. Well, I think you both have done a very good job of defining what we, we mean by resilience. So now let's talk about some of the major natural threats to the resilience of human coastal communities, to families, to communities, to regions, and to infrastructure. Margaret, I want to start with you again, and then Laura can expand on your answer. Sure. So I think the one that's uh, most obvious, uh, given recent events, is Mother Nature. Uh, be it storms like uh, Katrina or Sandy, are the recent typhoon Haiyan. Uh, I think that uh, how we deal with weather extremes and, and as weather extremes uh, change into climate, uh, I think that's uh, one of the overarching uh, challenges and opportunities that we have to demonstrate are, are to increase our resilience. And? Yeah, so I, I agree with Margaret. I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges of the current uh, day as well as over the coming centuries. I also think that one challenge is how uh, we as people can learn to better live with nature um, and to love our coasts without really loving them to death, which is kind of the trajectory that we've been on. So how can we as humans um, continue to enjoy the coast but enjoy, enjoy them in a way that's sustainable uh, for generations to come? So I guess our vulnerability is increasing because our coastal population is increasing. But what about the threats? Are they increasing? And if so, what are the driving forces? Laura, let's start with you on this one. Sure. Well, um, as Margaret already mentioned, one of the major, major driving forces is uh, climate change and basically increases in sea level rise, um, changes in storm intensity, increased air and water temperature, and how, how those... Um, changes, also ocean acidification, affect uh, human communities and natural resources, and of course those are interconnected. So, um, but it's important to note that it's not just climate change operating independently, it's climate change within the context of other global changes that we're starting to see, and changes in this country, um, increased population growth in coastal regions, people kind of migrating to the coastal areas because of all the benefits that they provide. Uh, increases in pollution, marine debris, and lots of other lots of other challenges for the coast. And so, how these different threats kind of interact with each other is is really what um, we're trying to understand and to plan for. Margaret, would you like to add to what Laura has said? Oh well, I'd sort of like to give you a, a great example. We we shape our natural uh, exposure our vulnerability by where and how we have our footprint on the landscape. So where we site critical infrastructure, roads, uh, water systems, sewer systems, uh, all of that sort of determines the range of exposures that we will have, how we will design those, uh, those concrete structures uh, as communities, as business, and as individuals. Uh, that in turn is, is, says something about our appetite for risk. And I want to emphasize uh, Laura's uh, discussion about the complexity. 
for instance, uh, we don't always think about the, the drought that's gripping much of the country as being a coastal issue, and yet everything we know about watersheds and how watersheds work by the time the drought uh, is made manifest on the coast, the lack of water coming down the watershed, it adds a, a, another layer of complexity uh, to both the natural systems and their ability to tolerate uh, increased uh, aridness or increased salinity. Uh, but moreover, Jerry, as you know, being in Southern California, uh, drought increases your likelihood of wildfire, which in turn increases your likelihood of flash flooding and mudslides. So that's a great way that these things can come together and, and just deal us a, a, a difficult sandwich to eat. All right. All good points. And now I'd, I would like each of you to look into your crystal ball and make some comments about the prospects for the future. Margaret, we'll, we'll start with you and then Laura can add to it. I think that, well, let me back up. Uh, I used to be a lawyer, and uh, uh, when I was uh, early in my career, we used to have this construct called assumption of the risk, uh, which we seem to have lost sight of in this country. Uh, I think that uh, our appetite for risk awareness, risk management uh, in our household, in our businesses, in our communities, I think that's the one thing we all have to wrap our arms uh, around. Uh, and uh, I, I do think that since Sandy, we've at least seen an increase in the public discussion about just these kinds of issues that we're discussing today. Okay, Laura? Sure, yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I think it can be a little scary when you look at the trajectories and, and see how little change there is in some instances, but I also think um, I have reason for hope because I'm seeing uh, a lot of bottom-up action from a lot of communities that basically don't want to lock themselves into an unsustainable future. And so they're having those hard conversations about how to enhance their resilience and to make some of those uh, hard choices, but also take advantage of opportunities to do so. So I guess my interpretation is that if we don't do things differently, that is, if we don't increase our resilience, then our vulnerability and our risks are going to increase in the future. That's for the, the uh, human communities. What about natural communities? For the assemblages of plants and animals, what are the major threats they're confronting? And Laura, let's start with you on this one. Sure. Um, so I, I think the, the threats to natural communities in many cases are the same um, threats that human communities experience. And I think, um, you know, non-climatic uh, stresses like pollution, um, you know, coastal development and other things like that are affecting natural systems. And so in many cases, these systems are already heavily degraded or depleted, which makes them then less resilient to uh, climate variability and climate change. And so that's really what we're seeing now is that you have a lot of um, degraded coastal ecosystems that are also now being subjected to the um, impacts of climate change, and, and that can be really challenging. So. Um, as an example of recent changes that uh, have been seen where I used to live and work on the Oregon coast, uh, starting in 2002 when I uh, first arrived there, they had changes in ocean and wind conditions that led to a dead zone um, and many fish and crabs and other species were um, dying, washing up onto the beach, trying to flee the low oxygen waters. And now that's happened every single summer since then. And it hadn't happened before in over 50 years of um, scientific observation. So 
that's just an example of how sometimes these changes can be surprising, which um, kind of emphasizes the need for uh, flexible and responsive, responsive management of natural resources. Thank you. All right, now let's turn to strategies. What are some of the strategies for increasing the resilience of coastal communities? And let's start with human communities. And Laura, let's have you begin that. Sure. Um, I think that, that one area where we see a lot of promise uh, in terms of enhancing resilience in a sustainable way is to uh, use the protective benefits provided by natural systems, coastal ecosystems, to enhance the resilience of human communities. So we saw um, at least anecdotal evidence after Sandy that a lot of coastal communities that had invested in uh, habitat conservation or marsh restoration or um, building up their dunes had fewer uh, losses of property than did communities that didn't have those natural defenses in place. So that's really one um, area where we see a lot of interest is how can we integrate this green infrastructure or kind of uh, habitats, coastal ecosystems into our um, gray infrastructure planning so that we have basically green and gray working together to enhance coastal resilience. Margaret, would you like to add to that? Well, I think that this is actually the point that Laura raised is uh, very important because what we've tended to do uh, in this country, generally speaking, is uh, we identified our preferred development sites for our public uh, infrastructure, water, tour, roads, or for our next economic development park. Uh, sorry about that. Our next economic development park. And we do that. Uh, historically without much attention to the environment in which it's situated. Where is it in the watershed? What is its relationship to uh, wetlands or, or maritime forests or whatever systems are around us? And, and yet, if you really want to derive the maximum value of how, how well Mother Nature defends us, then you have to think about these things uh, from the very beginning that uh, uh, my example would actually be uh, working with folks in Mobile, Alabama on the topic of community resilience. And, and we were actually looking at uh, habitats in the area and the changing uh, landscape in the large Mobile uh, regional watershed. Uh, and even as we were discussing the importance of different wetlands versus other wetlands, uh, the Regional Chamber of Commerce Director uh, came up to me on the side and uh, asked me a question about the, the currently designated 10-year floodplain and 100-year floodplain. Uh, and when we had a brief little discussion about uh, how those lines came to be constructed and how those lines are also changing along with the increase in extreme high tide flooding that we're seeing on almost every coast, uh, his comment to me was, well, you know, I was thinking of putting the new steel mill right there next to the 10-year floodplain line. And I said, well, that would make a lot of sense because if you had a major storm, how are you going to get everybody to the steel mill? Do you have that many spare John boats? Uh, and, and within a very short period of time, the regional economic authority had redirected the preferred development site for the new steel mill and all of its jobs to the edge of the currently designated 100-year floodplain. Now, it wasn't what I was thinking of as community resilience when we started engaging uh, with that region on this discussion, but it certainly is a matter of resilience. So people's jobs are much more secure, the economic production of that plan is more secure, and that community has likely saved themselves a lot of disruption and money 
the next time a major storm comes through or they have some other big natural disaster. And I think what you've just described also underscores the importance of information, education, and outreach. How would the strategies change when we move away from human communities to natural communities, communities of plants and animals? And you might say a word about wetlands. Uh, in a rising sea, they've got to be able to move either laterally inland or they to build vertically. Laura, what are the challenges for the natural communities? Um, that was going to be uh, the example I was going to use, actually, is that we need to allow for um, space for wetlands to move. So if you have a road adjacent to a, a wetland, it's not going to be able to cross that road necessarily as sea levels rise. And so I think that's just one example of how we need to have the space um, for systems to be able to adapt. We have to enable that to happen. And another way to do that is basically um, to reduce the uh, non-climatic um, stresses of ecosystems like pollution and other types of habitat de degradation so that we can um, enhance their ability to adapt to climate change. Basically, by enhancing their resilience in general, we can, we can give them a better shot at adapting as the climate changes. So in some ways, it seems to me that the challenge is to design the coastal landscape of the future. Margaret, um, give us your thoughts. Uh, I believe that we have to, we have to not just uh, describe uh, the landscape uh, in the natural system since Jerry, but uh, what we know from the science community is the communities that are the most resilient, they have the greatest ability to uh, take a lick and keep on ticking, uh, is the communities that also have very intact social, civic, and, and business uh, networks. Uh, those communities that already have a robust uh, civic community are among the first to uh, pull it together and, and recover from whatever uh, uh, event that they have been facing. So I think it's important to understand that uh, we not only have to protect the environment because it protects us, the natural defenses that Mother Nature provides so much more cheaply than we can possibly construct with concrete. But we also have to pay attention uh, to the, the nature and the quality of our social community and economic relationships within our communities and within our watershed uh, because that is also a part about being uh, whole and resilient. Good point. So I think one of the best ways to build nature and nature services is to work at building social capital, the interactions between and among people. So who has the responsibility for efforts to increase the resilience of local coastal communities? Is it local government, the states, the feds? Who? Margaret? I would say that we all do, Jerry. Uh, each of us has our own particular uh, interesting capabilities, but I think one of the clearest methods, at least to me, of the last few years is in a, in a country uh, which seems not to fully appreciate the uh, capabilities of the public sector or even the scientific community, uh, that it then behooves us to understand and work with social and civic and community groups, uh, both uh, public but increasingly 
of private. For instance, that's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of the Business Civic Leadership Council of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, because they and all their member uh, local chambers uh, and the corporate foundations that support them are, are already beginning to recognize the importance of these very issues that we're discussing. Uh, when they first uh, had this realization was after Katrina hit the northern Gulf of Mexico coast uh, about a decade ago, uh, and one of their observations was even if they could maintain their own continuity of business operations, they could get back to business quickly. Uh, it didn't do them a whole lot of good if there was no one around in the community to buy their goods or services. So then they recognized that they were actually part of a greater system, their community, uh, and they began to take these issues of community resilience and disaster risk reduction much more seriously. And over that last decade, I've seen them go from zero uh, corporate foundations who have a funding portfolio along these lines to uh, several dozen that do. So uh, I think that often in a local community, uh, the, the business sector is a very important component. Uh, we've also seen this in the climate arena. So even as our country as a nation as a whole has not been able to articulate a, a very coherent or robust climate policy, and many of our states have not, yet over 900 of our local communities have. So there are 900 mayors, uh, city or county councils or commissioners that have actually uh, recognized the issues in front of them and stepped up to that no, and it, 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 I would also point out that your very own Coastal America and the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network is a network of 25 uh, institutions, mostly all aquariums, spread around the coast, and they can also help in building this resilience. Laura, would you like to add anything to that? Sure, yeah, I agree with Margaret in that we all share responsibility, and I think uh, one of the mantras we use is, think globally, plan regionally, act locally. Because when it comes to issues like climate change, the impacts are gonna be felt locally, and so there's going to need to be uh, local initiatives to kind of enhance the resilience of communities to climate change. But there also need to be policies, best practices, um, communities of practice that share knowledge across um, boundaries and kind of help each other uh, work together hand in hand to, to do this. So we are making progress, and uh, I think that we clearly need to, to make more and to accelerate what we're doing in a coastal zone to increase resilience. What did we learn from recent uh, extreme events about community resilience? Sandy or the severe drought that gripped Texas and much of the southeast? Um, in addition to what you've already said, are there some other lessons from those recent events? Margaret? Uh, well, yes, uh, clearly, uh, I'm going to cite New York. New York City uh, has a very robust initiative right now that's called uh, Rebuild by Design, and they're looking for innovative, creative ways uh, to deal with their environment as well as the uh, likelihood of rising sea levels and other challenges. Uh, and, in fact, that they had already begun thinking about those issues was the reason that they had... Uh, Balloons to inflate several, although not all of their subways can change. The other thing that I think is very impressive is that the governor of New York uh, has also recognized that uh, there are a lot of people who've been living in low-lying areas, 
uh, Rockaway Beach, uh, other places like that for a long time who are on limited incomes. Uh, and he stepped out rather smartly, and the state of New York has a bond bill uh, to uh, make monies available to folks who want to uh, elevate if they wish to stay where they are in a fairly hazardous environment or uh, to relocate. Uh, they're going to make uh, buyout funds available at fair market value before Sandy hit. So uh, elderly people, people of limited means, they will actually be able to have some options about where and how they uh, face the future. So I think that that's a great example of how mayors and governors uh, can uh, bring together a community. Uh, Bloomberg, the mayor of New York City, actually uh, had a major commission that had a lot of people from both the private sector and, and the not-for-profit sector uh, lead in the development of these very kinds of recommendations. Laura, would you like to add to that? Sure. I think... Um Recently, it's been kind of a wake-up call to this country that we are vulnerable to extreme weather and climate. And in 2012 alone, there were uh, 11 different events that each resulted in over a billion dollars in damages for a total of $110 billion in damages over the course of the year. And so I think that's kind of a reminder that, um, you know, we are vulnerable and that this really is an economic issue. So it's not just a community sustainability issue, it's an overall issue for the economy, and it's both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, I also think that in 2012, again, it was a reminder of how connected our coastal ecosystems are to the health and well-being of our coastal communities and economies. So, for example, Margaret already mentioned uh, drought impacts in Apalachicola Bay, where I used to work, um, on the panhandle of Florida. They saw um, major population declines in their oysters because of drought and upstream water with, uh, withdrawals. So because of the drought in the southeast, basically the fishery was collapsing, and then it resulted in a, a fishery disaster declaration. So this is, again, just a reminder of how connected our uh, coastal populations and livelihoods are to our natural resources. And, and I think the other takeaway lesson is how vulnerable and reliant we are on the nation's infrastructure, whether it's the, the electrical grid or water, wastewater, transportation, we, we are very vulnerable to the infrastructure. Well, we're getting near the end. I want to put up uh, several slides that capture some of the points that you've made about what we need to do to increase resilience. And we can't spend very much time on them, but I invite either of you to comment on any of the bullets that you see up on the screen. Margaret, it's, well, not, it's not like you to be lost for words. Well, well Jerry, uh, I also want to build on a point that uh, Laura made a moment ago, and that is that the cost of each of these kinds of events, Sandy or even uh, lesser events, uh, in an era of constrained fiscal resources, uh, if we don't take action to make ourselves uh, a more robust community to increase our, our natural as well as our constructive resilience, uh, these kinds of events actually take uh, sorely needed funds away from other important issues like uh, education or economic development or, or public health or whatever uh, is the issue that's of greatest concern to you. So I, I think uh, the role of aquariums and other discovery centers is, is very important because uh, helping individuals in their communities and with their communities understand and address the kinds of risks that we are all exposed to 
is a very important part of the uh, resilience process. Thank you. Very, very good point. If we could put up the, those slides. We don't have time to go through all of these. These will be posted on our website. But I, I guess I would like each of you to comment briefly. Margaret, I want to start with you. A broad, broadly shared vision of a sustainable future. It seems to me we have to have that at the national level, regional, and the local communities. What is it that we value and what are we going to protect? What are your thoughts? Uh, my view is that absent a vision, you cannot know where you are going. Uh, and, and as I alluded earlier, in the absence of thoughtful, uh, articulate discussion at the national level, uh, we increasingly look to uh, regional and local efforts. Uh, and indeed, we have found that many people uh, resonate uh, most closely with the community around them, with the watershed that they're in. And I think beginning with that watershed, beginning with uh, uh, the discovery centers, the aquariums and the discovery centers, and helping people to understand the watersheds within which they live and derive their uh, values, uh, is a great place to uh, start us off to a better future. All right, now I want to look at this slide again. That second bullet, accurate and timely data information and tools at decision relevant scales. This is something that we all rely upon NOAA for providing to the nation. Would either of you like to comment on that? I'm sure I will. I mean, I think at NOAA, we really see this, again, as an opportunity to better connect up our science with, um, with society. And so we're getting approached on a regular basis by citizens who want to know um, how to plan for um, future changes. And so they come to NOAA for our uh, climate information, tools and services, as well as other types of information about coastal systems. And it's really been um, exciting to see, I think, the growing interest in the types of information that we provide, and also has really um, forced us to make sure that the science that we produce is actually um, usable by, by citizens uh, working to plan for climate change. Thank you. Margaret, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I think I'll defer to Dr. Pettis. Uh, okay. All right. Well, uh, the only I want to come back to that that slide for just a second. The robust and collaborative planning process and the adaptive leadership. It seems to me those are both keys. We have to to uh, collaborate at the scientists and and community leaders and uh, planners. We have to have collaboration, cooperation, and we also have to have compromise in some of these things. And we have to be able to have adaptive leadership in an uncertain future. So I think we will leave the rest of those and we'll post them up on our website. But I would like to thank our two guests today. I think this has been a very good, lively, and important discussion. Margaret Davidson and Laura Pettis. And uh, we hope that you will join us next month when we talk about ocean acidification. Ocean acidification is one of the, the most pernicious, persistent, pervasive impacts on the ocean, including coastal areas, and it's probably one that is among the least understood by the general public. Dick Feely, who is a scientist at NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory, and Bob Davidson, the director of the Seattle Aquarium, will be our guests for that program. 
I thank you again for joining us. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations.